Hi, this is Mark Rabin. Welcome to episode 243 of Lean Blog Audio. This is a post from January 14th, 2018, titled, The Response to the Hawaii False Alarm Can't End with Firing Someone. This and other nuclear threats due to bad systems. If you want to read this article um, and, and see the links, you can go to leanblog.org slash audio243. I've also linked to a shorter version of this post that I've put up on LinkedIn. So Saturday, you, you might have seen the news about a false alarm push alert that was sent to many iPhones and other smartphones in Hawaii. An alert was also sent out over many TV channels through the emergency response system. If you were in Hawaii and actually received this message, it might have been a bit traumatizing as people shared photos of the this is not a drill alert online. It pops up on the phone and it said emergency alert in all caps. Ballistic missile threat inbound to Hawaii. Seek immediate shelter. This is not a drill. That's how it ends. Um, after about 40 minutes of panic, an all-clear message of sorts was sent out. But the aftermath leaves people asking what happened, how it happened, and why. Now, some inevitably are asking who screwed up, looking for a culprit to blame and punish. It's important first to find out what happened. It's hard to do problem solving through news reports, but let's do our best. As this Wall Street Journal article explains, on Saturday morning, just after 8 a.m. local time, and I'll add an insert here we've learned later, it said just before 8.10 a.m., a Hawaii state employee hit the wrong button on a computer during a shift change and accidentally sent an alert to many of the state's cell phones that a ballistic missile was about to strike. So what was your reaction to this, um, to this story? Um, some people are, are going to have the reaction of saying basically, oh, what an idiot. I mean, they should have been more careful. Is this reaction helpful from government officials? There's a quote from Hawaii State Representative Matt Lopresti, who told CNN, I'm extremely angry right now. People should lose their jobs if this was an error. Now, there are unfortunately many news stories out there right now that use the word blame in this situation. Blaming seems to be part of our human nature, and it's actually in a way primate nature, but we can do better though. Firing or punishing an individual without making meaningful and effective changes to the systems means it's just a matter of time before a new person makes the mistake. It might be appropriate to fire an individual who intentionally did the wrong thing, but that seems not to be the case here. As I've blogged about before, the just culture methodology uh, is very helpful in cases like this to determine if punishing an individual is fair and, if you will, just. And it's not a matter of being nice or soft. Unfair and unjust punishment gets in the way of future improvement. My first reaction to the story was along the lines of, how could the system be so poorly designed that it's possible to accidentally hit such an important button? I'm curious what the shift change detail has to do with anything in this scenario. I mean, I guess it's reasonable that the shift ended at 8 and the alert went out just after 8 a.m. But it made me wonder if the computer system they were using was um, designed like this. And I've kind of mocked up an image. Um, if you go to leanblog.org slash audio243, you can see it. There's a, a button on screen that says log out. And right next to it, right above, is a button that says send terrifying alert with a radio button that says not a drill clicked and, and another option that says drill. I guess you really kind of have to see it. But uh, a story from Wired magazine um, explains 
uh, the software, the situation here. It says it's a regular PC interface. This person probably had a mouse and a drop down menu of the kind of alert messages you could send and selected the wrong one, an expert said. Now, one time I accidentally booked a flight on the wrong day because I think I hit the scroll wheel on my mouse and it changed the date in the drop down menu. Things like this can happen too easily. Now, it's a much more trivial situation, but I've blogged before about how the American Airlines website at one point made it far too easy to cancel the wrong flight. To my surprise, American fixed the issue and even contacted me to thank me. Now, what I suggested to American Airlines was the lean concept of error proofing or mistake proofing. The focus with mistake proofing is to make it more difficult to do the wrong thing, or ideally we make it impossible to do the wrong thing. It seems this emergency notification system wasn't designed with error proofing in mind, or it was designed well and this was an intentional act of sabotage. I mean, who knows? I'll continue with the assumption though that this was an honest mistake, a slip or an error. If so, I'd call this a systems problem instead of labeling it human error. I mean, calling it human error often leads to blaming the individual or we throw our hands up and say, oh, what can we do? People aren't perfect. Well, what we can do is design better systems that are less prone to human error. That principle applies in healthcare and other settings too. Telling others to be careful is not an effective strategy for quality or safety. I mean, errors might occur even with people being careful. Again, from the Wall Street Journal, it says, officials canceled the alert six minutes later to stop it from being sent to people who hadn't already received it. But the news continued to proliferate as frightened residents called friends and family members. Now, it's good that they stopped the flow of erroneous messages going out. We'd call that a containment step to stem the flow of poor quality information, to stop that flow. Apparently, the entire state doesn't receive messages exactly simultaneously, which I, I guess that makes sense. I wonder if someone in that office or the person who pushed the wrong button then got the alert on their phone and realized something had gone wrong. I mean, it was the person who pushed the wrong button, quote unquote, on the way out to their car. From the news, it said, 38 minutes passed before state officials sent a new message that said the first alert had been a false alarm. And, and they had actually sent a tweet out um, 10 minutes um, after the initial message. So tw I think 28 minutes then before the uh, push message to the phones. I mean, I, as much as I love Twitter, uh, that doesn't reach everybody. But they pushed out a message 38 minutes later. It said, there is no missile threat or danger to the state of Hawaii. Repeat, false alarm. Now, my next question would be, you know, why did it take so long to cancel the erroneous message after it was detected? There wasn't an easy um, send and all clear button in that computer system. I mean, were there checks and balances or some bureaucracy to clear before the all clear could be sent? I mean, it doesn't seem like those checks and balances were there for the original terrifying message. So again, it says uh, from the Wall Street Journal, um, the, the, the person involved here is named Mr. Miyagi, which I assume he, I mean, it's, it reminds me of the movie, The Karate Kid. Uh, Mr. Miyagi didn't offer an explanation for why more than half an hour passed before notification was sent to cell phones that the alert had been a false alarm. He said, quote, one thing we have to work on more is the cancellation notice. I, I agree. The Wall Street Journal shares a bit more detail about how there was apparently a routine test of systems during shift change. It said, 
At a press conference Saturday afternoon, Vern T. Miyagi, administrator of the Hawaii Emergency Management Agency, said the alert was mistakenly triggered when the wrong computer button was clicked during a morning shift change test of the emergency alert system. I wonder how much thought went into designing the test process with a mind for, uh, you know, how do we prevent triggering a false alarm? So how do we improve the process to prevent recurrence? Now, better late than never, the state has changed the process to require some redundancy. Uh, it said the system, a state official said, the system for sending out emergency alerts has now been changed to a system with two people involved. So the same kind of mistake couldn't happen again. Now, I'm guessing they couldn't change the actual software that quickly. You know, does two people involved mean someone standing over the shoulder of the person doing the clicking to make sure that they're being careful enough? You know, does that process change truly prevent a repeat of the problem or does it just make it a little less likely? Mr. Miyagi said again, quote, we've implemented changes already to ensure that it becomes a redundant process so it won't be a single individual. Now, I hope they aren't going down the path to blaming that particular individual or any single individual. I'll give the state credit for appearing to take a systems view instead of saying something like uh, the person who made the error has been put on leave or something like that. According to a Reuters story, um, the FCC, the Federal Communications Commission, has launched an investigation. The article says FCC Commissioner Jessica Rosenworcel said the commission must find out what went wrong. Emergency alerts are meant to keep us and our family safe, not to create false panic. We must investigate and we must do better, she wrote on Twitter. So I'm curious if you've seen other news stories with details about what happened um, what are the lessons learned for your workplace? Are there likely any errors that could occur where it's just a matter of time before it occurs? Um, so that's uh, the story from Hawaii. If you want to comment, again, you can go to leanblog.org audio243. But I wrote a second part of the post here. Um, the, the subheading reads, we still live under the chilling risk of accidental nuclear war. There's a fascinating, if not chilling, book that I read recently. The title is The Doomsday Machine, Confessions of a Nuclear War Planner. It's a book written by Daniel Ellsberg, who used to work deep in the military-industrial complex. I mean, you know, he was the leaker of the Pentagon Papers. In the same time frame as the Pentagon Papers, when he was on trial, Ellsberg also had a stash of stolen papers about the U.S. nuclear program that detailed for example, the extremely high risk of an accidental nuclear war. As it was described in, in a book review, intending to release these papers as a follow-up to his Vietnam leaks, Ellsberg gave them to his brother for safekeeping, who buried them in his yard in upstate New York. Soon after, a hurricane and a flood swept them away into a landfill. This is something that you couldn't make up. Even with the searches of the landfill, the papers were never found. You know, maybe I'll do another full blog post on um, notes uh, I took on uh, the book, The Doomsday Machine. You know, there are many shocking allegations that will make you question the design of our nuclear systems and those of uh, the Russians and at the time, the Soviets. The risk of accidental full-on nuclear war still seems to be very high today, Ellsberg says. And that's not just a commentary on our current president. In the book, it sounds like there are some bad systems and processes that could lead to full-on nuclear war without the president sending uh, even uh, in, in, the, in the case of an ill-considered first strike. 
some of the supposedly elaborate safeguards that were supposed to protect against a rogue launch of a nuclear strike without the president's permission were apparently subject to workarounds. There's the famous story of how supposedly the safeguard launch lock code on all Minuteman missiles was set to all zeros after JFK ordered an extra protection be put in place. Now, the Air Force claims that was never the case, being set at all zeros. But Ellsberg, uh, in his book, lays out many examples where speed was emphasized over safety or caution. Now, it's logical that those responsible for having to launch missiles would do everything in their power to be able to launch them quickly before being hit by a Soviet strike. But the focus on speed certainly led to a number of risks. Speed was cited as a factor in this erroneous Hawaii message per Wired magazine. And this expert Simpson agrees, saying, quote, you don't want to be in the middle of an attack on the U.S. and have someone fumbling around with the message. It's also natural to conduct exercises to ensure the system is functioning. The problem in this case, Simpson says, is any exercise message should begin with the words in all caps, exercise, exercise, exercise. Uh, Simpson says again, quote, this was probably a state-run emergency exercise that doesn't have the strong controls that the Department of Defense has learned the hard way from 50 years of screwing up. Now, using the words exercise, exercise, exercise sounds like a form of error proofing that mitigates an error rather than preventing it. I mean, people might not have panicked over that form of message. I mean, has the DOD learned from their errors? Ellsberg says no. It's also claimed that the launch codes for strategic bombers weren't really as effective of a safeguard as we were told, Ellsberg claims in the book. Uh, several RAND colleagues who were knowledgeable about strategic air command procedures supported my guess that the numbers in the code were the same for all planes in the SAC alert force. Only a single radio signal needed to be sent out, and their understanding was that the code was changed very seldom. Here's another scenario to share from the book. Uh, one more to share uh, for now, if I haven't horrified you enough. Uh, conventional wisdom is that a bomber pilot, missile launch officer, or submarine commander can't launch an unauthorized strike. Ellsberg, again with his insider's knowledge, continually questions if these controls are as fail-safe as we'd like to think. He writes, for example, on the matter of the envelope authentication, when I posed the possibility that a conscientious or unbalanced pilot who felt impelled to go to target might try to convince others to go with him in the way my memo had speculated, the typical response was, well, he can't do that because he doesn't know the whole authentication code. Ellsberg says he would pause at this point, waiting to hear a second thought expressed, which never occurred. Then he would say offhandedly, unless he opened the envelopes. Even this hint often failed to turn a light on. I'd hear, but that's against his orders. If he hasn't gotten the whole signal, he can't open it. That answer usually hung in the air only a moment or so. The premise was, after all, that the officer in question had come to feel on some basis or other, like General Jack D. Ripper in Kubrick's film Dr. Strangelove a few years later, that it was um, time to commence World War III. He was on his way to drop a thermonuclear bomb on Russia, and he wouldn't expect to come back. Everyone encountered came to agree by this point in the, in the discussion that there was a real problem here, however unlikely. Now, the book is chilling, and it describes current-day risks, 
not just some historical situation that mankind was lucky to survive. The 1964 movie Failsafe is still chilling today. Without the dark comedy moments that we get in Dr. Strangelove, a film that Ellsberg said was basically an inadvertent documentary. So again, uh, to visit the blog post for this episode, you can go to leanblog.org audio 243. Thanks for listening.